I wanted to start out this morning by, uh, by apologizing to you. For those of you who I startled badly by aggressively dumping out my purse in the middle of my sermon last week, I didn't tell Tommy I was going to do that. Scared the tar out of him. He was like, whoa, in the front pew in first service. It was fantastic. So I hope I didn't scare you too badly by chucking my pens across the room. But I don't want you to forget the challenge. And I don't think you will for a while. But the call to come to God to hold nothing back, to empty out our mixed bag of belief and unbelief, our fear and our insecurity, and instead come before the Lord with full trust, trust that he will meet us right there with our mixed bag, right? I don't want to take the posture of the disciples who are all fluffed up as they were trying to uh, look out for their status and their position as a response to that deep fear and insecurity, uncertainty. But I want to take the posture of that dad of that father with the sick boy who could, could come fully before God and God's way of doing things with hands open and outstretched and said, receive me as I am, broken though I am. Well, today is really our last week of being on the way with Jesus on this journey to the cross because next week will bring us right into Jerusalem and we'll introduce that final week before the cross. So go ahead, if you will, and turn to Mark chapter 10 in your Bibles. We're going to kind of make, make our way through the chapter bit by bit today. Jesus still has so much to teach them on this discipleship hike as they have still have 120 miles to go. So discipleship is not for the faint of heart, nor is it for the lazy, obviously, according to Mark. So we are going to join them on that journey. Now, if you glance at chapter 10 in your Bibles, you know how they have those little headings in there that kind of tell you what the next paragraph is going to be about? If you just kind of look at the headings in chapter 10, The things that Jesus talks about as we move forward uh, seem like absolute bunny trails, okay? There's this like brief discourse about marriage and then some stuff about divorce. And then there's this part about kids in which Jesus again affirms that to enter the kingdom of God, you must receive it like a child, right? Arms open, totally reliant, no illusion of self-sufficiency. And at first glance, this stuff that Jesus is talking about seems really scattered and disconnected especially the marriage thing and then the kid thing. Like, you literally just said this about the children, like, right at the last chapter. Why are we talking about it again? And what does children, what does this have to do with following after Jesus, with being a true disciple who sees clearly instead of the fuzzy vision that the disciples have going on who are pretty fixated on power, right? I mean, the cross is literally right around the corner. And you want to talk about marriage and divorce? Why? Well, it's because, I think, as I've been reading and studying, that this marriage and divorce conversation isn't really just about marriage like a piece of paper, but it's about this dynamic of power in the kingdom of God and of God's good intentions for creation. Now, it's no secret to you guys, probably, that in that first century time, women had very little power even in the marriage relationship. They had minimal rights. They were very vulnerable. So if their husband died, it was essential that they either remarried quickly or had adult children that could care for them. Otherwise, they were in really deep weeds. And so when the teachers of the law come to Jesus looking for loopholes, wanting to try to find a way to justify breaking the marriage covenant and thereby leaving the vulnerable woman kind of out to dry, Jesus calls them out. He calls them out on their hardness of heart and their willingness to abuse power to achieve their ends without any thought to the weak, particularly to the wife. 
and no thought at all to God's intention for marriage as, as a sacred bond, a partnership, not a power play between unequal parties, right? Jesus is saying these power plays have no place in the kingdom of God. And so even though it's not immediately obvious... Jesus is telling us the same story at every turn. He's saying, guys, the kingdom of God is not what you think. It's not about who's in charge. It's not about who's on top. It's not about who has the most power or the loudest voice. It's about submitting to God's way of doing things, which does not include power and coercion. See, God's way is upside down. The submission to others, putting others ahead of yourself, giving your life away for the sake of others and ultimately for the sake of the world. And so how interesting. If you look at your passage, who rolls in to the next scene? The infamous rich young ruler. A man with power and authority and influence and resources. So where does this guy fit into the whole kingdom of God conversation, this following after Jesus on the way thing. Where does he fit? So let's read together. We're going to kind of break it up. Verse 17 first. Verse 17. So as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now I want you to think back for a second to elementary school, maybe middle school. Back in the day when you had to pick teams for PE class. Now, nothing can mess a kid up more than (laughs) choosing teams, right? Of course, nobody wants to be the last, of course, obviously. And you always want to secure the most valuable players for your team, right? Like if you're playing basketball, you want the super tall kid, right? If you are playing dodgeball, you want the kid that has both the wicked arm and a lack of scruples about hitting others in the head, right? That's who you want on your dodgeball team. When it comes to volleyball, you want the person with the killer serve, okay? And so I don't know where you fell in that lineup as a kid. I, in no conceivable way, was an all-star. Let me be clear about that. But I usually was able to avoid the bottom of the pile. I kind of snuck in the middle like nobody could really notice. Like, oh, not last. Phew, right? Dodge the bullet. And so when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, I imagine the disciples with their blurry vision and their fixation on power and position, they see this guy and they are pretty excited. Like, this guy wants to be a part of what Jesus is doing? This guy wants to be on our team? Man, that would be sweet. Think of the resources. Think of his dunk, man, right? Think of what the connections and the influence and the prestige. Oh, man, Jesus, you have got to recruit this guy, right? So verse 18, let's see what happens. Jesus said to him, to the young man, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Really, Jesus? You had to ask that of him? I mean, you heard the guy. He's never killed anybody. That's good, right? Come on. We all got our stuff. Let him join the team. But consider the rich guy's perspective for a second. 
the text tells us he ran up to Jesus and fell at his feet. Now, in my mind, that is not the behavior of a swaggering, I have it all together dude, right? That is the response of desperation. Someone who is in frantic need of something. And perhaps his question gives us a clue. He says, Lord, how our good teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? Now, our modern minds immediately interpret that question as to mean, how do I get to heaven? Meaning, how do I float up to the clouds when I die? But that question would make no sense to a first century Jew at all. The question would be better put, how do I inherit the life of the age? How do I get in on what God is doing? How do I get to be a part, not of this age of sin and of hurt and of things that don't satisfy? How do I get in on God's reign of healing and restoration? How do I get in on what God is doing, bringing God's future into the now? Because it seems evident to me that this rich young ruler knew in his heart that something was missing in spite of his wealth and his resources. And Jesus' response is so precious to me because he hears the litany of the man's accomplishments, all his big, oh, I never killed anybody. Good for you, buddy. And Jesus looks at him, and what does the text say? He looks at his resources and his power and his voice and his position, and Jesus looks at him not with disdain or with frustration or disappointment. It says Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He loved him. He loved him enough that he invited him to join the life of the age right then, to join him in God's redemptive work. He loved him not to leave him in his emptiness and desperation. He says, come, lay down your privilege, lay down your power, your security, and place all your eggs in the basket of the kingdom of God. Come and follow me. Well, the disciples, they wait with bated breath. Like, will the all-star join our team? But no, the man's face falls, and he walks away bitterly disappointed, unable, unwilling to surrender it all and follow Jesus with empty, open hands. What had seemed to be his greatest strength, his wealth and his position and his power, was ultimately his greatest weakness because it stopped him from receiving what Jesus had to offer, the life of the age. God's reign. What a blow to those disciples. Man, they are disappointed every quarter. There goes the potential all-star. And Jesus looked around at his poor, confused disciples and said, oh, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now the text tells us that the disciples were perplexed at these words. That is an understatement if there ever was one, right? Confused and shocked and maybe a little bit annoyed and cannot believe what they were hearing. But Jesus said again to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astounded and said to one another, then who can be saved? If that guy, with his position and his influence and his resources, if he's not making the cut for the kingdom, who stands a chance? And what I hear, that unspoken question of their heart, is if the one who has it all together, with all the resources at the fingertips, the guy who has all his ducks in a row, if he's not getting in, where does that leave me? Because I sure don't. Well, Jesus looked at them and he said, for mortals, it is impossible. 
but for God, all things are possible. Now the hike continues. Jesus has just dropped this bomb on them, you know, and the disciples are still so obviously blind. And so Jesus tells them again, this is take three. The Son of Man will be betrayed and will suffer and will die. This is literally the third time he has told them this in a very short period of time. But this time, the disciples, they don't ask any questions. They don't ponder what this might mean. They get to action, James and John in particular. Now, do you guys remember the story of the Mount of Transfiguration? Who gets to go up to the mountain with Jesus? James and John and Peter, right? And they all get to see Jesus lit up like the North Star, like the king that he is. And so James and John... As they're hearing Jesus say, I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. It is going in one ear and out the other, because you know what they see? They see that image of Jesus ablaze, lit up like the king of glory. And so as bold as can be, they walk up to Jesus, literally ignoring what he just said about his mission of giving his life away. And they boldly ask, Jesus, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Seriously, guys? Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. You want to be on my right and my left? Do you even know what that means? Because where I am going, I can assure you, the positions on the right and the left are not ideal seats. See? On my right and my left are positions of suffering and death, just like me. Do you know what you're asking, James and John? Now, the other ten are clearly annoyed by this, and my guess is their annoyance is rooted less in the audacity of James and John to ask, but rather rooted in their own frustration, like, why didn't I think to ask for that? That was a great idea. I should have asked first. Well, in verse 42, Jesus says, he called them and said, you know... That among you, the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, they lord it over them. And their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. To be a part of this life of the age, this, this God's new world breaking in, you don't climb higher, you sink lower. To be a servant, in fact, a slave. Jesus says, I'm going to pour my life out for you and for the world. And so if you want to be like me, you want to be a part of this age, you too pour yourself out. Give your lives away. They've heard that before, like 10 times in the last three chapters, right? And you've heard it before. I've heard it before. It's on the wall in the hallway. Give your lives away. But knowing something in our head doesn't mean the information has made it all the way to our hands and our feet. Amen? Knowledge is not the same thing as transformation. Knowledge, knowing it in your head, is not the same thing as obedience. You can have all the information and still not be a faithful disciple. You can know all the right answers. You can have all the resources, all the religious pedigree, all the position, and you can still miss the boat, folks. You can still fail to see rightly, still stumbling around half blind, mistaking people for trees. And then Bartimaeus enters the scene. 
yet another blind man. Remember the blind man back in chapter 8? He was so blind. And Jesus came to him and put mud on his eyes. or No, it was not mud. It was spit. And gross, right? Put spit on his eyes. And he opens his eyes. And he's like, can you see? And he's like, yeah, people kind of look like trees. I can't really tell. And he says, okay. And he kind of messes with him again. And boom, he can see. And that second healing, that slow, progressive healing reminds us of the disciples' stubborn persistence in their blindness. And us too, right? But this story of Bartimaeus in chapter 10 is very different. They're so close to Jerusalem. They're like 20 miles away from their destination. So this is what happens. Verse 46. They come to Jericho, and he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho. And Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see. And so Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and followed Jesus on the way. Now, if the rich young ruler with all his money and position and influence was like a 6'8 LeBron James you desperately want on your team, blind Bartimaeus is about five foot flat with his shoelaces perpetually tied together, okay? Not all-star material. And yet, here Bartimaeus is, yelling at the top of his lungs, demanding attention, demanding mercy, eliciting embarrassed shh from his community. Now, we all know a guy, don't we? Or a girl? Or your wife, maybe? Now, side note, is it always, I need your opinion on this, is it always the case that a quieter, more subdued person marries a louder, not afraid to ask questions at full volume in public person? Is that a requirement of marriage? Like at premarital counseling, do counselors always ask, okay, now which one of you will be embarrassing the other by hollering across the gas station asking for a pack of gum? Now, will that be you today? Okay, wonderful, we can proceed. Now, I will leave you in suspense about who that is in our marriage, okay? Now, and it is clear that Bartimaeus is the loud guy, okay? Because when, because when he gets hushed, I don't respond to hushing very well either. Uh, he responds by getting louder. It's like that annoying little brother who, when whistling and asked to stop, uh, starts whistling more aggressively directly in your face, right? That is Bartimaeus to a T. He's... <laughs> He says, mercy. Did you not hear me? I said, mercy, son of David. And he is shameless. Why? Because he's tired. He is so tired of waiting. Waiting for wholeness. Waiting for newness. Waiting for redemption. He is tired of waiting for the life of God's age to burst onto the scene. He is ready for Messiah. As far as Bartimaeus is concerned, it's Messiah time. And you can feel his faith pulsing in his voice, in his assertive cries for mercy that refuse to be silenced. His faith in the possibility of a transformed future. 
Mercy, I said. Mercy, son of David. Yes, I will use a messianic title for Jesus. And yes, I will declare that he is the one we have been waiting for. And no, in fact, you will not be silencing me today. Considering throughout the entire book of Mark, Jesus, for every person he has healed and every spirit he has cast out, he has demanded silence. He has said, no, don't tell him who I am. You would think with Bartimaeus screaming this messianic title at the top of his lungs, Jesus would be like, dude, keep it down. But something has changed. The time has come. Jerusalem is near. It's right around the corner, and the shadow of the cross is almost invisible. And so Jesus does not silence him. Instead, he calls him over. And Bartimaeus comes. Without hesitation, it says, he threw off his cloak and he sprang up. Now, what do you see in that response? I see eagerness. I see desperation, but not the hopeless kind. I see excited desperation. I see, I feel his energy just leaping from the page as his faith comes to life. See, in Jericho, it never really got that cold. So you didn't really need a cloak for warmth. What his cloak was for was like a tool of the trade. Like if you're a carpenter, you need a chisel and a saw and a lathe. If you're a beggar, you need a cloak. It's like your red Salvation Army bucket. Alms go here, please, right? That's his cloak. That's what it does. And seemingly, without a second thought, Bartimaeus leaves his cloak behind him. He is ready to abandon the past and embrace the future. And so when Bartimaeus approaches, Jesus asks him the same question he asked to James and John. He says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want, Bartimaeus? The James and John, they thought they knew what they wanted, right? We want seats of honor at your right and left, but they didn't know what they were talking about. They were so blind. And so it's pretty ironic that the blind man sees so clearly. He says, I know my need and I know who I'm talking to. Teacher, rabbi, the very title saying, I want to be your disciple. He says, teacher, I want to see. And with that, Jesus declares, go. Your faith has made you well. Blind Bartimaeus, the only one who has truly seen Jesus, who saw him rightly, and now he too fully sees. Unlike the disciples with their fuzzy vision, always looking for power, Bartimaeus sees rightly and he acts accordingly. And now he has the eyes to match the vision of his heart. You know, and it's like typical of Jesus, all, most of his healings, he heals them. He says, okay, you're healed, now go. He dismisses them. And it's the same with Bartimaeus. He says, Bartimaeus, your faith has made you well. Now go. But in the same way that Bartimaeus refused to be silenced, he refuses to be dismissed. Instead, he opens his eyes. And what does your text say? He follows Jesus on the way. Bartimaeus is not just healed. He's recruited. He joins the mission. He gets on the way. Jesus. Now, could his response be any more different than that rich young ruler? That unnamed rich guy walks away sad, 
unwilling to let go of that which stood between him and the life of the age of God's reign. And here we have poor, blind, beggar Bartimaeus who freely and willingly leaves behind everything he has, his security in a dusty old cloak, totally eliminating plan B. And he follows after Jesus, receiving exactly what he needs, restored sight, and more importantly, a part to play in the life of the age as he follows Jesus on the way. And so, here we are at the end of a very long discipleship hike, my friends. And we finally get to see a true disciple. It's not Peter with his bold but wrong-headed messianic declarations. It's certainly not James and John with their dreams of crowns and thrones. It's not any of the 12, and it certainly is not the rich young ruler with position and authority and resources. The true disciple here is a poor blind beggar willing to throw off his cloak and leap to his feet and come to Jesus. Now, I want to be a true disciple. I want to see rightly. I want to see Jesus for who he is, don't you? Not what my preconceived ideas and my own agenda and my own ambition want to see. I want to follow him more faithfully. I want to be on the way with him, don't you? Now, from what we've experienced on this journey between the, two, the healing of two blind men in Mark, what have we learned about what it means to be a true disciple? Well, a true disciple is one who rejects fear and embraces trust. A true disciple is one who abandons pretension and appearances and calls out to Jesus without shame. A true disciple is one who rejects the status quo, who says, how it is right now ain't how it's supposed to be, so I'm going to reach out for the only life that counts, the life of the age. A true disciple eliminates plan B and surrenders in full trust to God's good future, even if they don't fully understand. A true disciple names Jesus rightly as Lord and then lives like it. A true disciple is willing to adventure on the way with Jesus, even to the cross, even to a tomb. Now, as we come to the end, I want you to imagine with me for a second, like James and John, like Bartimaeus, Jesus stands before you, and he asks, Beloved, what do you want me to do for you? How do you answer? How do I answer? Is my answer, like James and John, all tangled up with my desires and my ambitions and my perceptions? Or like Bartimaeus, can I humbly respond, Lord, I want to see. I want to see you rightly. I want to see others rightly. I want to see the world rightly. I want to have eyes to see your kingdom breaking in now. I want to have eyes to see that resurrection power bursting on the scene at every turn. Lord, I want to see you, Jesus. And it is enough, is it not? Lord, I want to see you. I want to follow after you and be on the way with you. Amen. May it be so. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, this is our response to you. 
as you have extended your hands and said to us, Beloved, what can I do for you? This is our request, Lord, that you would open our eyes that we might see, that we might be able to follow you more closely, surrendering plan B and throwing ourselves fully into the good future that we trust you have in store for us and for creation. And we confess there are times when we do not see rightly and we are blinded by our own agenda and our fear and our insecurity. And so, Lord, we ask that you will give us eyes to see you rightly, to see ourselves and others rightly, that we might get on the way with you, follow you to the cross, that we might experience your resurrection. Lord, we trust you will do it. And we ask all of these things in the powerful name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen and amen. Amen. Beloved, would you stand and extend your hands to receive the benediction today? Beloved, will you go from this place trusting in the promise of the Lord to give you eyes to see? May you trust the Spirit to empower you to get on the way with Jesus. Just say yes. Go in action. And go in peace.